it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to our malt mates at Crime Malt, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. Well, this week, beer tax, independence, and much, much, much more. Last Saturday, news broke that in the upcoming federal budget, brewers are going to get a significant boost through changes to excise. These changes have long been lobbied for, and it's a big boost for the IBA to have brought it home. At the same time, there was a touch of irony as the announcement was made at Canberra's Bentspoke Brewery. The irony being that Bentspoke founder Richard Watkins has been on this very podcast a number of times, during which he has sometimes voiced a measure of concern about these very measures. And I had a number of people contact me over the weekend to point that out. But today I speak with the IBA chair, Peter Phillip and Executive Director Kylie Lethbridge about the changes and the IBA's lobbying efforts that brought them about. We talk about what it means for brewers and also whether concerns about a brewing gold rush being triggered are well-founded. Needless to say, being beer is a conversation, we discuss that and a whole lot more besides over the next 50 minutes. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Peter Phillip and Kylie Lethbridge from the IBA, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, thanks, thanks Matt. Matt. Really, uh, really happy to be here. Very happy after a very big week last week, I'd imagine. Oh, mate, it was a big weekend. Um, oh, it was all secret squirrel right up until the last uh, last second. Um, so we were told, make yourself uh, make yourself present on Saturday morning in Canberra, um, which we did. Um, obviously, we had an inkling of what was going on, but. Um, when we when we finally got the media release, um, you know, early on Friday, uh, yeah, we were everyone was uh, over the moon. It's funny what passes for a budget leak, um, heavily inverted commas these days. Uh, it, it, it's not just briefing a couple of journalists; it's actually holding a press conference, uh, and it's still called a leak. Yeah, well, anytime um, you know a, a politician gets to uh, stand next to shiny stainless, it's always a good, good photo op. <laughs> and pour a beer, um, I, you know, it was, uh, yeah, politicians all love to uh, pour a beer. It's a great photo op. And uh, now the treasurer, did, I thought, did a, did a really good job. A- absolutely. And I, I guess, I mean, one of the things that really struck me is to announce this in the very, very clear air of pre-budget announcements two weeks before the budget, really says a lot about what how the government views an announcement about craft beer. Um, you know, they, they really gave this a lot of um, you know position in uh, in the media. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was. I mean, they made that uh, an, that kind of announcement that it wasn't going to be an austerity budget and it was all about jobs, jobs, jobs. But this was really kind of the first. First cab off the rank, wasn't it? Mm. That, which was quite striking, and it even uh, preceded a, a big announcement about childcare, which again is, is quite striking for what it says about the the, the currency of craft beer. Mm. Mm. Well, we are a sexy industry, I'll tell you what. 
and just made uh, sexier because of uh, excise rebates. So maybe you can talk us through uh, a little bit about the lobbying that went on um, to, to generate this. It's been a long time, but then also what it means for brewers. It really was um, a, a massive effort over many, many, many years. So this, this lobbying really goes right back to the CBIA uh, days, and that's, that was before my time. I've been on the board, oh, God, uh, five years. This is my last year. So, it, you know, we've, we've been asking this for a long time, but I think, um, you know, about five years ago was when we really started putting a lot of work into, um, I guess, getting the data and the real, and the real value proposition uh, articulated for the government. So um, the original thing was we hired um, hired a company to do uh, an economic impact assessment and um, help turn that into an excise, um, I guess, an excise modeling um, process that um, that really showed what what it would cost and what the effect would be. And we we did a survey of the members and uh, you, you know as. Kylie will chime in and tell you um, she's got a lot of experience with this kind of stuff. Um, Data is what an association runs off of. And until we got our act together with getting data, we were really, you know, it was blown in the wind, really. And, you know, the government was never going to give us what we uh, what we wanted. Wouldn't you say so, Kyle? Absolutely, Pete. Yeah. And, And really, until... Until you're, you know, as you know, Matt, we've done a lot of knocking on doors at both a, and, and, and still are at both the state and federal level for a number of things. Um, and unless you're there with 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 independent, uh, viable and, and valuable data, they it's very difficult for, for you to receive any traction. And it's very easy for, for um, you know, politicians and bureaucrats not to listen because they have no... You know, they have no feel or no understanding of the size and the opportunity that comes from from the growth that we've experienced. So, you know, data is essential in having anybody take you seriously. Have brewers been a little bit – I know there was a little bit of reluctance on behalf of brewers to, you know – be fully transparent with their numbers um, and I even have had some express to me their concern that if they did give their things like production figures that it would mean that their IBA membership dues would go up. Have, have they become a little bit better at contributing data? From my perspective, um, absolutely and and I understood that reticence and, and to be honest in all of the uh, in all of the economic impact analyses I've done, it, it, that's quite common um, because, you know, regardless of industry, because there's a there's a reticence or there's a nervousness that, uh, you know, if I, if I say this, is that going to change from an ATO perspective? Where's this data going to go? And it, it, it was the reason that, that our analysis took a little longer because we did certainly have to chase and to reassure um, reassure our members, and in fact, it went to the non-brewery members as well. Um, that that the information was going to consultants. We would actually never, and and still have not to this day seen any of that individual data. It's all been aggregated into the report, and that was, you know, we did that for that very reason. Is is to ideally get people to provide that information. That is, you know, very valuable business. Um, you know, secret, secret squirrel. So we tried to 
assure people from the very beginning that that we wouldn't see that and that data would go nowhere else other than to consultants who you know will will would not share it either um but yeah it was wasn't easy that's for sure hey matt surely you're not you're not suggesting that anybody would understate their production just to get cheaper I, <laughs> i'm not suggesting it i've been told that, that. <laughs> that's it <laughs> so you know i, I can well, as always we'll I can get only the sleuths on, on that immediately yep yep expect a knock on your door if you've uh, <laughs> underreported. <laughs> Now, Peter, you did say that, you know, brewing is a sexy industry and we've seen, you know, uh, in, in my media clips, I see lots of, you know, politicians lobbing up at the door of the local brewery and it's something that, you know, is very celebrated in, in Queensland. We recently had a gathering of Queensland brewers at Parliament House uh, um, that, you know, was well attended by brewers who were very well versed in who their local breweries were. Is that a factor, just the attractiveness of brewing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, look, it's it's got everything that a politician loves. You know, it's it's creating jobs. It's good for the economy. Uh, uh, almost everybody loves beer. So, um, you know, it, it's you're backing a winner when you back um, small breweries. You know, you, you just need to look at, um, you know, the reception we got from the New South Wales government with the Deputy Premier John Barileo. Um, you know, putting his name behind backing brewers. Um, so that, you know, that was fantastic in New South Wales. You know, we've got a Queensland um, craft, independent craft strategy. We're working on one uh, in Victoria. And, you know, that, that's what we want to do. And we, we do, we find we're pushing on an open door, door when we go in. It's just a matter that it takes a long time to get the traction and get get people fully behind it um, but once it's once they're behind you then you start making momentum pretty quickly i know that uh when i anal- analyzed the announcement on the weekend actually maybe take us through the uh announcement exactly what it means for brewers as a result of the changes that will take place in the in the current upcoming budget yeah so from july 1st brewers will um, get more excise back so currently we can apply for 60% of the excise paid uh, up to a limit of 100. Now it goes up to 100% of the excise you paid up to a limit of 350K. So, you know, this is is bringing us on par with um, the wet relief that um, small wineries get. You know, they they previously got 500K and they've gotten that for, oh God, I think it's 15 or more years, probably more closer to 20 years. Um, I think it was since the introduction of GST, and um, and it got it got scaled back a few years back to 350. So we're, now we're on par with small wineries um, in terms of the, the alcohol tax. Obviously, they pay wet, we pay excise, but otherwise it's pretty much the same thing. So that was an argument we made is that um, small brewers are, are just as important to the economy as small wineries. And uh, the, the benefit of that wet relief to the wine industry, you just cannot, you cannot uh, uh, overstate it because the wine industry is, is a, a poster child for a great Australian industry. And, you know, our argument to the government has always been that uh, independent brewers can be the next wine industry, just 
just give us the right environment and we'll take it from here. And as I've always argued uh, in in my contacts with government, the difference is wine can only be grown where grapes can be grown, whereas breweries can spring up anywhere. They're not uh, geography dependent. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, I think I kind of believe that this is going to bring us back to you know the late 1800s where there was almost a, a brewery in every town in Australia, right? And and certainly I've always really um, grabbed onto that that um, that cultural um, thing where in Bavaria there is a brewery in every village and the people of the village only buy their beer from that brewery and there's a huge amount of loyalty and the breweries, you know, just as important uh, position in the, in the town as the, as all the other public offices, you know, it's like you have to have a, a brewery in your town to be a real town. So, you know, I think in 1871, I was looking this up today there was one brewery for every 6,000 people in Victoria, right? So by that measure, we should have over 6,000 breweries in Australia, right? If that was... <laughs> of course, it's not quite a like for like, particularly given you know, beer consumption's going down from how it was then yeah. and alcohol consumption's going down from how it uh, was in any previous time as well. Yeah, it's not going to get to 6,000. But I guess my point is that I think every small town can support a small local brewery. You know, um, I speak to a lot of people starting breweries or thinking about starting breweries, as I'm sure you do, and definitely Kylie does. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking for a tree change. You know, they're moving away from the city. They can telecommute if they're professionals and they want to keep access to their, their current job. But, you know, they've got a dream of opening a brewery. So go out, find an old pub, um, buy it, renovate it, put a brewery in. You know, that brings a million dollars right into that community on day one and probably hires 10 people and and they become a hero in, the, in their local town. So, you know, I think that's, that's really the model that's going to be taking hold over the next few years. Although I guess the element of the tree change, they, they tend to move to more desirable <laughs> destination. The, the sea change and the tree changer tend to move to you know places that don't need encouragement um, for people to move there. Um, you know, will do you think this move will see people you know move to some of the more regional, um, you know, less tourist-based uh, lo- locations to open breweries? Matt, a good example is I think, we, you know, we've had a chat before about where I live um, and I live in a little town called Romsey, which is about 4,000 people and it's had its pub boarded up for probably, I want to say, six or seven years now um, from for, for a million different reasons, but a fight with council and the owner won't sell it. We've got a new brewery called Daily Lager um, and they're looking for a home um and we're not a tourism town but the population is growing exponentially it's close to the city will grow eventually it will have services and the the town the footy club the netball club um you know the 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 community are so desperate to have that pub that their meeting place that they used to come together and and gather at um back in the hands of somebody that might be a little community minded to the point that they're actually raising money to try and buy the pub. So it's a community pub. I think, you know, I have a very personal approach to that example, but that's a really good example of, um, you know, what will happen when a community 
wants their town to thrive and what happens when one trigger like a little brewery that's you know around the corner in an industrial estate that might might have the capacity to grow into a hospo facility or might be able to partner with somebody to to develop a hospo facility what that can actually do to a small town and what what desire there is out there um, you know, Lanceville, the next town up, just got a planning permit through for a brewery. It's a population of 2,000 people. Um, so, again, I think some of these these things, it's, it's chicken or the egg. You can either have a tourism town that would attract people like Pete was talking about or you can actually have, uh, whether it be a brewery or a distillery or whatever, uh, whatever kind of product that you're talking about, it can make a town sometimes. And we've seen uh, lots of examples of that. I guess I know that Peter didn't quite uh, agree with some of the observations that I'd actually repeated rather than made myself um, about brewers concerned that you know, one of the things I've often heard outside of those you know, regional ones that we see um, is that one of the things that there hasn't seemed to have been a barrier to is breweries opening over the last five years. You know, we've been seeing 30, 40, 50 a year opening um, and whether this is going to in, accentuate that number or increase that um, number of opening, openings and then increase the pressure on some of the breweries that are already established. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, I don't think anybody should be afraid of competition. Competition is good for the market, right? Um so if you're talking about price, right, we're already competitive on a price basis with the, the bigger brewers. I mean, we all are very familiar with how the big brewers work. You know, they sell their beer for, um, you know, 350 a keg or something like that. And then they've got big rebates that bring the price down. Um, and that those rebates are going back to the publicans. And, you know, Smaller brewers can't compete on that basis because we don't have access to capital to um, to buy taps and those sorts of things. So we're competing with a small number of individual taps. We can talk about tap contracts later if we really want to get into that. But I think that we're already competitive on a price basis for the product we're making. We're making a craft product that's much more involved to make um, and a much better product. So I think... So, you know, we should, be pr- we should be pricing that at a premium. Now, I do know what you're getting at, but that um, there are people that are using price as a competitive lever. Um, you know, I think anybody using price as a competitive tool isn't reading the market properly. It's not going to increase volume because um, it's not encouraging consumers to drink more because basically craft beer carries a premium. So the publican's still going to charge $12 a schooner, right? And they're just going to pocket the difference. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not good business on so many fronts. Um, you know, it, it's distorting the market. Uh, all it's doing is increasing the publican's margin. And it's not sustainable for the brewery in the long term. Because, you know, I know very much how, how much it costs to make a keg of beer. And I know some people aren't making money at the price that they're selling a keg of beer at, which is kind of a, a very short-term, short-term thing. It's not going to be able to uh, keep on doing that. Again, hundred percent agree. But I guess the, the 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 fact that it's happening even before the excise announcement came through shows the potential for 
brewers to use this money, um, you know, some brewers to use this money to lower the price, and that puts pressure on the entire market um, to, to do the same? Uh, not, not really. I mean, it does and it doesn't. I mean, we, we never responded to that. You know, I've got sales guys who would say to me, oh, Pete, so-and-so are selling beer for 180 bucks a keg. I say, good on them. Um, you know, they won't be around for long. And we've seen that happen. Right, I'm not going to name names, but mm. we we have seen companies that have tried to sell beer very cheaply to raw volume, and it's backfired, and um, they've either had to pull out of markets or whatever. So, you know, you need to you need to sell your beer. Everybody needs to make a profit, right? And you should be selling your beer at a at a price that is a sustainable price to support you know, the growth of your business. I mean, that's just Business 101. So, you know, people might try and do this on a short-term basis, but, you know, chasing that is a race to the bottom. I guess one of the other things that, uh, you know, the, the, the questions that comes from the vision of breweries across the country is skilled brewers, which are, is all, are already in short supplies, um, speaking to brewers. And we have seen state governments um, stump up with TAFE training and increased training along there. But it does take a while to get, um, you know, skills into the industry. Um, you, know, you know, over the next five years, has there been forecasts about how many trained brewers will be unleashed uh, onto the market? We're just about to... To do to to do some numbers on that, Matt. Exactly that. Um, we're we're in the process of creating a, a series of umbrella, <clears throat> either programs or policies um, for the IBA and for our members in the industry. And one of those is IBA education and training. We've we've in the past we've done um, we've done a huge amount of work in this space. It's being led by Rich Adamson from Young Henry's, who's you know he's really he's he's kind of cutting a path and through through himself, but it's just come to us recently as a result of, um, of a trial we're doing in South Australia and some work we've started to do in Western Australia about, uh, and Victoria, I should say, uh, advocating for those courses to be on the ground, particularly Cert 3 and 4. And we've realised, um, you know, and that that, that is, uh, again, us responding to the understanding that there's a shortage of brewers. The, in having have this conversation now almost nationally about training, um, we realise there's an absolute shortage of trainers. Um, so, we, you know, you, you then try and pivot and look at, okay, if, if there's a shortage of trainers, what influence can we have in this space? So we're just, um, and, you know, this is, I guess, a part of the the uh, kind of strategic next step for us is, is what influence the IBA can have in either developing, you know, getting those numbers that, that we were just talking about before, uh, having the data, what influence can we make in this space ourselves in, in being the trainer or in developing the content? Um, so, yeah, we're absolutely aware of it and, and very quickly trying to get our head around what's achievable and, and we've, we're looking at um, a potential partnership with with a university or, or, or some such institute that would actually look at what those numbers look at. So a proper analysis over the next kind of five to 10 years that would, I guess, you know, sit alongside the data we've already got about potential capital investment and potential job growth in that in the sector. What does that mean for the training that's required? It sounds like uh, that, that work's well developed, but I, I, I was struck by the figure in your announcement 
of, I think, $500 million investment over the next five years in, essentially it sounded like stainless, is that correct? Capital, yeah. Capital. Yeah, it's in, it's in everything. I mean, it's not just stainless, it's in developing the, the business. So it's in, you know, delivery vans and, and in fact, in marketing. And, you know, these are investments in, in uh uh, that, that people need to make. So we didn't look just uh, at equipment. It's it's in it's in everything. But oh, sorry, it was a, a, couched a, in terms of manufacturing capability. So yeah, so that that sort of seemed to be much more yeah. direct manufacturing as opposed to business support. I guess it's about growing the business generally. A big part of it is is obviously uh, equipment and, and capability. Is there any data around how quickly the because we we do know that beer is consumption is declining overall? Is there any data over the volume growth that's taking place in the craft and also the indie craft um, segment within that declining market? In the 2020 financial year, I think um, we grew uh, we grew our market share 20 percent. Yeah, I want to say 21, um, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm quickly searching for the figures, Matt. The market has to grow. Well, we, we are going to grow the market to 15% plus. So we, we, you know, I think that was um, uh, a figure we came up with around five years ago. Um, you know, that's, that's the year that uh, Ben Kuman was, um, was the chair. Um, and we had a pretty... Uh, new board, and we were really looking to um, to change the whole change the whole focus of the IBA from something that was really completely focused on advocacy to something that was focused on consumers. Right, so we've got to be our focus has to be getting getting consumers to understand what indie beer means, and I'm not talking about you know our typical craft consumer i'm talking about moving into the early majority right um uh, people want to support local businesses like independent craft breweries um and we need people to rally around that independence logo as the symbol that means that yep the beer you're drinking is actually owned by a local independent business that keeps its profits in Australia, as opposed to the 87% of of beer that's owned by um, Japanese multinationals, you know, that I don't think a lot of people understand where the wh- who owns their beer, and you know we need to um, tell the stories of small brewers and make sure people understand. Um, if you want to support local business, you look for the look for the logo. Uh, well, on that, how important is um, is it that consumers know not only you know, who owns the business but where the beer is made because we have seen a lot of breweries really trumpeting being local and also bearing the independent seal um, when quite often the beer isn't, isn't made anywhere near the um, region that sometimes even bears its name. So I mean, how important is that to the integrity of the independent seal? I believe in truth and labelling. Um, we... We, we want to see um, real provenance. Um, um, so, look, I think that's I think that's important, um, but I think that's a small that's a small proportion of of the indie beer that's out there that's that's in that situation. 
But I, I guess longer term, and the, the reason it came on my radar was there seemed to be an increase in, you know, brewers that weren't, you know, everyone has the narrative of wanting to open stainless or, you know, invest in stainless, but there just seems to have been an increasing number of brands that have come on the market. Um, and, you know, I, I've uh, been going through the exercise recently where we're compiling a database of breweries to see if we can come up with a number. And the more we looked into it, um, it was incredibly difficult to differentiate in a meaningful way between, for example, a, a contract brewed brand by a major supermarket um, or a contract brand made by a group of mates. You know, they could come out of the same brewery, um, it may have no connection with the area that it's actually sold in. And we are seeing an increase in business models that, you know, have the potential to distract from, you know, what independence means if we are talking about provenance and, and you know, transparency in, in labelling. Um, is that a concern for, for brewers that, you know, in, in invest in stainless steel in a region? The feedback that I get and the, the, the uh, inquiries that we deal with from, you know, I guess from an operational perspective, Matt, um, is that, yes, it is important to our brewers that, if they're following the rules that others follow the rules. Um, and I know there's been a few even that I've had people ring me up and say, you know, this is, they've got a post office box or they, these guys are doing, you know, this in terms of their labelling. Some of those, and, and every instance I deal with it in some way, um, whether it be uh, liaising with our members and, you know, reminding them of the rulings that have been made or um, if they're not our members, still just give them a shout and say, you know, given that you're not our members, you don't have access to information and we share and you don't have access to labelling guidelines and things like that, that we, uh, resources that we develop and share with our members. And you might just want to be aware that this is actually, um, you know, this has been, uh, you know, an important ruling and handed down that, you know, it, it, it must happen. And, you know, I've got some really valuable uh, information on that from from your previous um articles as well, Matt, because again, it was a bit new to me. So whenever it's raised with us, I do certainly follow it up. It's not, uh, it doesn't happen regularly, but it definitely happens. And every time I know about it, we either pop it in one of our mailers just to remind people that that's the case. We, you know, every time I get a new inquiry, I make sure our labelling guidelines, you know, do do clarify and, and provide as much information as possible on the elements that need to be followed. Obviously, there's, you know, as you would know, there's so many when it comes to labelling that, you know, as a new brewer, it might be a little difficult. But, you know, to answer your question directly, yes, that is a concern when it's um, when it's noticed and pointed out to it. We try and have some influence over the outcome. Does the IBA have the ability to withhold access to the IBA logo for people who don't, for, for businesses that don't comply with the, the ACCC's you know, fairly clear um, guidelines? Yeah, we have, we have you know, that, that seal, uh, the independent branding elements for our asset. And um, there's been a number of instances, whether that be, um, you know, complaints to ABAC or things that we don't feel, um, you know, are in line with what the IBA is about. And we have absolutely um, the ability to, to withhold access to that. We've got rules around how... Um, you know, if the seal, if there's breaches of of what we feel is our kind of overarching um, 
policy and uh, code, then we can withdraw the seal. And then there's some requirements then about if we do withdraw access to that seal, how quickly they need to take that off their packaging and their marketing materials. So yes, we have we have an ability. Obviously, it's challenging to enforce. It's not a legal document, but yeah, there is a, a policy in place when it comes to what you need to sign up to when you when you get access to that seal and its and all its elements. We've taken a bit of an unexpected detour, so we, we might step back to last week's big announcement. Obviously, that was the result of a long period of lobbying. What are the next uh, targets or um, major initiatives for the IBA? Yeah, we've got a long <laughs> we've got a long list of, of priorities. That's for sure. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've yeah, CDS growing our membership growing trade membership, quality, TAP contracts, um, education, as Kylie said, state strategies. Um, uh, did I say TAP contracts? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, we probably don't have two hours to uh, go through all these. But <laughs> well, well, let's um, talk about TAP contracts because, again, that was something that was announced about 18 months ago as being in, in you know one of the focuses, but um, there hasn't been much, uh, at least publicly, available on that. Um, you know, and, and the, the IBA opted not to even comment on a story I wrote where we were sent a contract that a, an IBA member was specifically targeted by the big brewers. Um, so that is still a, a focus of the IBA's lobbying efforts. Look, I personally believe that tap contracts are un, unfair. Um, and anti-competitive, but I think our main focus. What? Well, sorry, we we do have an active project looking at tap contracts. So um, we we certainly don't want to be going off half cocked. We want to be absolutely sure that we have a um, that we have a case and a strategy there if we want to attack that. However, I think before we look at at legal rounds. Um, we're focused on growing the marketplace and convincing publicans that actually they can make more money by selling indie beer, right? And that attacks um, the lack of taps in a, in a more sustainable way than, uh, you know, a legal, you know, we could get a legal ruling and then there could be another, another mechanism that achieved the same thing, mm. right? So um, lawyers are clever like that, right? So uh, I, I, I would rather publicans around the country um, decide, you know what? There's, a, there's an indie beer for everyone, right? I don't need to have one of these big brands to have a great uh, pale lager. Um, there's, there's indie breweries that produce fantastic beers in every style. So I don't, I don't need the big breweries for that. Um, and I can make more money. I can make more margin by doing this. And, you know, I can, you know, I can build my business by backing these guys. I think that's more, a more sustainable model. And that's certainly in line with what we're, what our focus on, you know, more consumer marketing. And, 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 and in fact, you know, the other thing I mentioned was growing our, our membership. So, you know, Publicans and retailers can now join the IBA for free, right? And they um, get access to the the supporter logo, and they 
uh, get access to support, they have access to events and, and, and so on. And that's really a big push for us in the next year is, is getting every publican and every retailer as a member of the IBA because if they're in the, if they're in the tent, we can really work with them much, much closer as, as an association as opposed to, you know, obviously every member deals with them directly, but um, we have not dealt with the trade very well as an association. 100%. Well, so 100% to the getting them in the tent um, is, is a huge win for the, the, the IBA. Um, I, I just, it, it did stand out a little bit, Peter, that you referred to pale lager in, in, in your answer there because doesn't <laughs> that say, you know, over the course of 20 years how much the wheel has turned? Um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I, I think t- to me there's two things, right? Diversity and quality, right? And and the third element is the story, right? Because people want to buy beer from people that they identify with that are local and they like the story, right? That's, it doesn't matter whether you own a local restaurant or a local brewery, you know, consumers like to buy local and they like to know who they're buying from and they like to know the story. But, you know, I think we need to recognize that not everybody likes a, a chocolate cherry double imperial stout right um like more we 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 as brewers and as creative um creative beer artisans love creating different beers and pushing the boundaries and challenging our taste buds and challenging drinkers but there's a a total other segment of the marketplace that just loves a corona right (laughs) i mean i mean you know i hate that beer um but there are people out there that love it, right? So are we saying that, no, no, indie beer is not for you? No, absolutely not. There's a market for every style. There's a market for every taste. We can't be arrogant. We've got to be inclusive. And there are great pale lagers out there that are super, super refreshing. And, you know, I would say, not that I would say that any of the big brewers are making bad beer, right? Um, but we can make beer just as well as they can and, and you know, more creative and, and certainly the story is different. So, you know, we want to be inclusive and that diversity um, means that there's an indie beer for everyone. I'm up on the Sunshine Coast and have been enjoying a Japanese lager from a, I believe, an IBA member, um, you know, made with rice and all of the things that once upon a time weren't seen as craft and I've been thoroughly enjoying it. So, uh, and I'm, I'm sure the independence makes it taste that little bit nicer as well. Absolutely. There's <laughs> time and place, time and place for everything. You know, when I'm sitting on a, on a beach in Bali, I'll, I'll demolish a dozen bintang, you know? Um, so, I've actually got a name for that. It's called the Bintang Effect. Um, but <laughs> now, um, look, looking ahead, we do have, we're, we're just on the cusp of uh, Good Beer Week. How are things looking? I think th- this is the first full IBA run Good Beer Week from memory with 2020 taken out. And I think you'd only just taken it over in 2019. It is. Yeah, it is, Matt. It's, um, you know, I was joking um, when I was in Canberra the other day that um, we, you know, I didn't, last year certainly was uh, was an interesting year and we're, 
we're now just realising the the impact, or not now, but have been realising the the impact of having a, a, a you know a proper good beer week and a start to the Indies and a start to the uh, to Brucon. Um, so the team's flat out, but Good Beer Week is going really well. Super, super happy with the program. There's about, there's, you know, 200 events. Uh, I think we're going to see, um, we're going to get to finally catch up and have a beer with you in Melbourne. So that'll be fantastic. And and the Brews News team, the Trade Hub uh, has some really good looking, um, some good looking talks and some seminars and ticket sales are going really well. We've, um We've just spent the last couple of weeks, you know, uh, doing the analysis of, of where we need to give a little extra push and we've done that. Having the, uh, having the marketing, uh, kind of most of the marketing done in-house has, has, been, um, has been challenging but certainly rewarding and I think delivering results for those venues participating. So some of the, um, some of the things on the program are fascinating and I absolutely cannot wait to, uh, to be running from one to the other during that time. Are some of the IBA's outreach activities a little bit limited by the fact that its consumer-focused event is, I guess, tied to Melbourne? Um, it's not something you could really take on the road, is it? We um, we had a good chat about that. I was up in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and, and uh, with Pete and lots of brewery visits. And again, you know, consumer marketing and consumer-related event events is is absolutely where our members are telling us they want the IBA to go, and so, and have been, you know, since um, since we did surveys during that you know challenging lockdown time last year, and so we had we not have had to um, you know put off staff ourselves last year, and we still haven't been able to put those those positions back on then we would certainly have, um, you know, have something a little more detailed to, to say to you about where Good Beer Week might go. But the the purpose of that is is absolutely in the future is consumer events and, and we, want to, we want to work with the partners that are already in the market to make sure that there's no duplication and we're delivering the best possible experience to our consumers. So we're starting to work or have started to work with the events that are already in place and we will then... Uh, in in conjunction with kind of a um, bit of a strategy planning session we've got coming up with the board is look at where we go with Good Beer Week. But, yeah, the idea is to take IBA events around the country. Oh, that's uh, As somebody in, in, in the far north of uh, – well, not quite the far north, but certainly in the, the, the northern climes, it's, uh, it, it's good to hear. Yeah, and we've, we've actually been doing quite a lot of work um, – I've been doing work with the Queensland government to look at how we implement the the um, craft brewing strategy up there and how we kind of you know fast track where that goes and and the first the first lot of um, partnership work we're doing with the Queensland government is is obviously around Indies and the Brucon and Brucon which is in their state so we were just working through that kind of their support of those activities and the next cap off the rank is for us to look at what we do over the next 12 months via a separate agreement and that might include some consumer-related events as well, Matt. So there's a lot of good work happening there under their um, their own plan. That all sounds very exciting. I look forward to the announcements about that. So I'm, I'm just very conscious of the time. Um, is there anything else that we want to talk about excise or is there anything else that's sort of uh, looking ahead um, that – you know, the, the, the broader industry um, and not just IBA members uh, should be aware of? Um, look, I think that excise is, is obviously the good news of the week and mm. we're all uh, celebrating that. But 
you know, we're not um, we're not stopping. I think that in, in terms of lobbying um, and advocacy, I think CDS has got to be the next cab off the rank. I know uh, I don't want to get it, get into this because I get worked <laughs> up whenever I think of CDS. It's, it it it's, just uh, confuses with every state having uh, a different regime. It's uh, it's a it's an absolute roar. It's an absolute roar. It winds me up pisses me off when I start thinking about it. I get so angry. Uh, it's a big... I should answer that question, a... Pete. <laughs> yeah. Carly, would you like to answer that question? Uh, oh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, it's a big, it's a long, it's going to be a long game, uh, but we are absolutely committed because I know that, um, you know, for Wayward as a member, this is what I want the uh, IBA to be focused on, um, or one of the things at least, you know, consumer marketing first, but then the next thing is r- rationalizing red tape and the biggest red tape we have at the moment is CDS. So let's, we can leave it there, but <laughs> rest, 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 assur- rest assured. I want uh, all the members that are listening to understand that it's so uh, top of mind for us now that exercise is out of the way. I think it's also worthy to, to make note, Pete, that um, we, it's not, we haven't left it alone. We were um, we were instrumental in some of the um, some of the changes that the Victorian government made when they put the model out for consultation. We got quite a lot of traction. Um, you know, we were working there with our uh, you know the bigger brewers and really the whole drinks industry um, and the, and the ministers involved in that process listened to us. So the model that was just released in Victoria was certainly. Uh, certainly different than what they put out and we had some wins there in terms of the the, the pay in arrears rather than the pay up front model. We are also working, um, we're just about to start working with our brewers but we've started to work with government already in Tasmania because they flagged the fact that their CDS model will be released in June. So we, we have definitely uh, been in their boots and all when it comes to getting uh getting into the state opportunities when we can including the the, you know the new wa model what our members want and what we're again just putting our mind to now is what influence we can have in regard to having at least some consistency from state to state because the biggest the biggest headache that i'm told exists is is a brewer that's that's uh, distributing in every state the cost of it and the, the, the time it takes and the understanding and the different models is one of the biggest costs to business. So basically we'll work with our members from here on in, again, to try and get some data, to, to do some analysis as to, you know, what that cost is and see where we can uh, see where we can actually recommend or suggest some alignment to the states. Obviously, you know, working with each state and getting them to have some some similar model in place is is challenging. But if we can hit a couple of targets, then I think that that would be the most um, the most beneficial, rather than having the federal government, you know, try and take on CDS, which you know I very much doubt they would ever consider. Mm. Actually, it was it was interesting. You know, on on that and harking back to an earlier point, not only can craft breweries be everywhere and not just in the wine growing regions but when they are everywhere I guess that makes them a fairly powerful lobbying force for change if you know every electorate has a significant brewery uh, 
to, to, exactly. to, to, to yeah. lobby its uh, local member. It certainly yeah. uh, gives them an incentive to listen to em- employers in their area. As well as being able to say, you know, Matt, we've talked about this before, that, you know, um, the number we use is that two-thirds of breweries in, in the country and regional areas and that's, um, you know, that's a, a good reason to have a voice that, you know, most either state or federal governments have have a remit to deliver for, for regional over and above their ordinary remit. So it's, it's good that we have, and it's fantastic that we have members that, you know, will absolutely rally to that call and that work very well with their local MPs anyway. So they're quite often, they quite often get a good audience with their members of parliament. Absolutely. Well, it certainly sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. Um, good luck and congratulations on last week. Um, and, you know, good luck on all of the things that it sounds like you've uh, got on the to-do list. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, abs- Yeah. no, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, I just want to, you know, I want everybody to know that Kylie mentioned it before, but the IBA team have actually, um, you know, during COVID, we cut everybody back everybody's uh, days back to four days a week they're still running on that so the IBA really uh, has been running on on a shoestring budget particularly over the last year when we haven't been able to have um, have events so getting back into the normal swing of things with events uh, like good beer week and brew con and everything hopefully we can get up to full speed but um, yeah last point is anybody who's not a member uh, this is the power of what an association can do. Um, Three hundred fifty thousand dollars in everybody's in everybody's pocket or up to. Um, so I, I think we're safe to, um, safe to say that uh, there's no excuse for anybody not to be a member of the IBA now. And lots more um, good stuff happening. And Kylie and the team have been absolutely uh, killing it. Terrific. Well said. Um, Thanks. <laughs> well, Peter Phillip and Kylie Lethbridge, uh, thank you very much for joining this conversation about beer, and uh, we look forward to having a beer with you, as Kylie said, uh, ooh, in just over two weeks. Yeah, that's going to be great, Matt. Really looking forward to it. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, Matt. And that was Peter Phillip and Kylie Lethbridge. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryo Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner, and they are also our partner in good beer conversations.